let me welcome uh, Jill Bogdanowicz. Hello, thank you for having me on. Thanks for being on. I have to say, when I look at that reel again, I realize that um, often color in a film is nice. It looks great. It adds a feel for it. But with all three of those projects, color really, and cinematography, of course, but color really tells the story as much as anything. And they're just stunning work. And we'll talk about them more as we get along here. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so first off, let's talk about, um, Let's we're going to get into some general things here initially, and then we can get more specific. Right. For a lot of uh, our guests who are filmmakers, um, how do you work, what do you do prior to filmmaking, to the filming process, the steps that you get ready with the director, with the DP, to sort of create that look or get ready for what is coming your way? Cool. Well, that's a good question because that's how it all starts, right? Yeah. Is is that communication with the um, creative? So usually, I will read a script. Um, that's the most fun is to be able to get in on the project and start to create a little create ideas about what um, what I can bring to to the cinematography from my perspective, right? So there's several people I work with often, um, you know, Larry Shear, who did, Lawrence Shear, who did uh, Joker. And for example, him and I talked about the look of the, of the movie and we can get into more detail later, but basically did testing. So he would shoot, um, in this case, he shot on different cameras to be able to see which ones would kind of, we'd be able to stretch around and make work for with the look we wanted. And, um, and to actually, in that particular case, reference a filmic look. And that's something that a lot of people say they want, you know, when they go into a movie, um, but everybody sees it a different way. Everybody's got a different perception. Yeah, so what, <laughs> so that's a good question. What is, what is a filmic look? Exactly. Everybody kind of feels it a different way. Now, in this particular case, for Joker, we used a uh, lookup table that was very technically correct with film characteristics that are, you know, basically scientifically built that way. Um, funny enough, my father is a color scientist and actually built that lookup table with me. We, we did that um, to be able to really make it emulate film, a film stock of that time period. And so in that case, we would talk about the feel, the look, the time period, um, different challenges we may have on the film, shooting at night with not as many lights or uh, say if it's a movie with a lot of visual effects, we talk about that and what would be super, um, you know, what would lend itself well to those situations. So we talk about all that type of thing and then shoot some actual material, usually for a hair and makeup test or something. And uh, we will usually build at that point a lookup table. Now that doesn't do all the work. A lot of people I think are under the misconception that the lookup table does a lot of the heavy lifting, but really I kind of like to say that it's kind of like picking your film stock back in the day, right? So you would be able to pick, say a film stock that maybe had a little bit higher contrast or had um, a, you know, lower contrast or whatever. Like you can, you could pick your different photochemical looks and then go from there with the combination of the cinematography and the final color work, it all comes together to create a feel. Right. So anyway, the first step would be kind of get my head around the story, find out what, what the creatives are really looking to uh, focus on, and then create a lookup table. I usually will help supervise dailies throughout just to make sure that the, the vision is, 
is upholding. And then, you know, then I get it in the final. And sometimes I'll do visual effects reviews and that type of thing along the way to make sure that visual effects is also on the right track. So it's, it's just a lot of communication um, on every step of the way. So you work, you used to work at Kodak um, yeah. and Insight. And so there's a lot, I used to teach a class in film and it was visual effects artists for film. And so they would look at me with this blank stare when I was asking them or telling them things about film, about film structure and, and emulsion and things like that. But they always come around eventually to say, you know, oh, now I get why you said that. And so yeah. you with a background in film, I mean, how, how much do you use of that knowledge to bring to a digital world now? Funny enough, a lot. Um, because, you know, not only is the film has a look. Every, there's so many people, it's just undeniable. Film has got a richness, film's got a look to it. Film has a depth to it that so many people respond to. And everybody takes something a little bit different from that. So I think having a technical background and understanding how film works, how film emulsions are built, different characteristics of film, and even the different laboratory processes like bleach bypass and such, understanding what all of those looks actually are and where they come from and what those looks are help me to be able to communicate with the creatives that might be referencing that and also help me to be able to build and choose how I color a project for it to be able to have that similar feel. Right. Yeah, there's so much of film that even just filming techniques that really can be translated if you know if you know about them, they're historical and people are like, well, history is important because it teaches you. And I did a film that I directed and I shot on film, but I really wanted to have that bleach bypass look. And so we ended up yeah. telecining it, the negative right away and inverting all the nodes when we transferred it and then yeah. reverting back to it. And it gave this really kind of a Western look or almost like that. It was very unusual, but having a knowledge of that film as well as the digital really makes things happen. So um, yeah. real quickly, how is, what, do you have a standard setup when you get a shot? Do you approach it a certain way? I've heard millions of approaches of how to color a shot to, in the beginning. What do you recommend just in general? Uh, honestly, honestly, most of the time what I'll do, my process is to pre-grade first. Usually what I'll do is after all these conversations with the creatives, I usually have an idea of what they like and what they don't like. And I also have the dailies as a reference so that they can communicate to me very clearly like, oh, this scene, is pretty good, but it's a little too cool. And then it's my job there to take a look at that, use that information and be able to make everything even better to a you know, much higher level. And so, um, you know, that being said, I think, I think that, uh, you know, there's not one specific way to do it. Right. I like to color it very simply. I like to pre-grade, have a strong pre-grade, meaning a strong image with, um, you know, uh, not clipping, not crushing, technically sound, uh, understanding how the camera is responding, whatever camera it is, seeing if we have multiple cameras that we have to match, figuring all that stuff out beforehand and creating a really solid base to color yeah. from. That That's my general rule. Now, is there a technical certain way I do that? Not necessarily, every project is kind of a little bit different, but yeah, but it's it's really creating, I always say, I always use this analogy when I'm coloring that when you build a house, you don't pick out the fixtures and the curtains first. You know, what you do is you build a solid foundation, you have the plans all put together, you have your architecture and your window placement and all of that, and then you go ahead and you 
you know, do all the polishing work. So that's that's how I like to approach color correction. That makes sense. That's great advice. So let's go from the cinematographer side now. For young cinematographers or cinematographers who haven't had the opportunity to work with, you know, this level of color, how do you, what do you want to see, and I'll use a film term, what do you want to see when you get the negative? What's the, right. you've got the processed footage or the digital footage and they've shot in raw and or log or whatever. And so you're, yeah. what do you want to see in an image that makes, gives you the best tools to create from? Well, I would say a really solid neg, which is basically, <laughs> yeah, a nice thick neg, which basically means that you have a lot of details. So, you know, if you have the, if you have a DIT on set or, if you're looking at any of the um, scopes on set, just making sure that when you're shooting, you're doing um, the most you possibly can to retain as much detail. So you're not going to be clipping out skies or windows as much as you possibly can. Um, or if you do, just be aware of that and just you know know that we're never gonna get detail back in, right. in that window that's blown out in the background. Um, so I would say, yeah, thick negative, as much detail as you can, um, you know, if you know exposing it in 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 the way that it should be exposed to have the least amount of noise you know because that's always something that that i deal with um occasionally you know whatever you have a shot that maybe the people are losing light and you need to get a shot then we have some noise which we can of course uh help with but you know just get give a really solid really solid um negative and then also a lot of times you know i always say that Color, we can do a lot in color, but it's really important to have good lighting on set. I always, you know, there's no substitute for beautiful lighting. Um, beautiful lighting can give me the most freedom, really, uh, to be able to create, uh, you know, more of a, more contrast and more of a look. So I'd say, you know, do as much of your homework and do as much lighting as you can in camera. And then that also gives the color, it's not, not less work to do, but it actually gives us more of a uh, more freedom to be able to create more things. Yeah. So when you when you're shooting, uh, if the filmmaker imagines, the cinematographer imagines down the road in final, they want a really high con look, so deep shadows and really almost blown out highlights. Don't shoot it that way, but mm -hmm. shoot with that kind of uh, key to fill ratio, maybe ratio. fill higher and key a little lower, so that you can bring it there, but it's not, you're not losing the information. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Good, yeah, um, that. a funny thing, a film person, I'm excited, I get to talk to a film person. Um, <laughs> for everybody watching, and if you haven't shot film, a thick negative was good, because remember in the negative, it was going to black, that means that was white, basically blown out. But there's so much detail in that grays, even if you can't see it on the negative, that it right. allowed for much more. Uh, you could do more with it in the end. But if it was clear, then that was a problem. Uh, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> um, so let's talk talk a little bit about Joker. Um, yeah. when you, so you started that, I think um, I saw when we were chatting earlier that we talked about, you had some sort of reference material and we talked a little bit about uh, matching a film thing. How else did you guys communicate to start that process with the director and the DP? Yeah, so um, basically the director and DP shot some tests in New York with a few different cameras. One of the cameras is a film camera. So um, really we're looking, Todd, the director, really felt that the story lent itself to a filmic look. Right. And, um, you know, but nowadays actually shooting film has different limitations because there's not as many labs or getting the film stock. And then anyway, there's just 
sometimes um, more of a workflow issue. And then also, you know, having low light situations and that type of thing, you don't want to get into too much grain. So anyway, they were just looking for different options to be able to get a filmic look. So they shot a test on film, the same thing on a few different cameras. They ended up shooting on the Airy 65. So we'll just use Airy as the camera that we were looking at mainly anyway. So um, what what they did is asked me to make the 65 look like film. So what I did is I called up my father, who I know used to build film Great stock. To <laughs> exactly, pick up a phone. And uh, so just called my dad and asked him, you know, if, if we, he could build a lookup table for it, specific stocks from late 70s, early 80s. Um, one of the stocks that was very popular at the time was 5293. So finding something with that kind of base curve was awesome. So he built that we worked back and forth to be able to fine tune it. And that is the lookup table we ended up. And then of course I have a color science team at uh, company three two, which also helped as well to, you know, make all the different versions that we need for different deliverables, of course, and, and to um, make sure that everything worked through our workflow. But yes, we, we built that lookup table. And then I went ahead and I colored the Aerie 65 to be able to match to film as much as we could. The other thing that we did add was live grain, which is a separate program. And um, what that does is it actually samples real grain and it applies it separately in the red, green and blue channels. So you also you don't just overlay grain on top of an image. You're basically creating depth with texture. So one of the, another reason that film has such a depth is that it has that textural depth and it's got a very deep color depth. So those are the two things that we were really trying to emulate creating this film look. And so with using that lookup table and using combination of live grain, and then I colored it to be able to make it feel very much very similar, ran those two side by side and um, decided they decided to go with the Aerie 65 with the film. So so that's how it how it uh, evolved really in the very beginning. So one of the things I noticed about the Aerie 65 and, uh, is it's incredibly shallow depth of field, it seems. It I can be the lenses, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some of the shots that it really, I didn't know how much you were able to, you augmented this as well, but just that kind of uh, shallow depth of field, both in focus, but in color, where his face yeah. would be warm, but drop quickly off to a cool background or yeah. a cool environment around him. Is that something also that you you kind of worked with the Area 65 to create? Yeah, so I, I didn't do the depth of field with focus. That right. was all Larry. <laughs> Yeah. I was all the cinematographer. But what I did is created the depth with color. And that is what you're talking about, creating a little bit more color separation. So in Joker, kind of a very filmic feel where the blacks didn't ever really go super, super black. They have very cyan, if you really pay attention to it. There's not a solid, solid black. They all have a slight color, which gives more of a pop to things that are warmer, it separates more and creates a little bit of that color depth. And that's a very filmic thing to do. Even if you looked at back at old film prints, a lot of times the blacks aren't totally, weren't totally neutral black. You could see them be maybe a little lift and a little cooler or a little bit warmer, whatever. They, it, that's a very filmic thing. Um, you know, it is more of a digital thing to have a totally clean, flat black, right? In, in film, it's got depth, it's got color. Even if it's very subtle, it's there. So, so we went with that too, that type of idea to be able to create that color depth. In That's the image. Beautiful. Let me jump back one uh, 
back to the creating the LUTs and the start of the project, when you were shooting, so that LUT that you kind of developed, there are they shooting with that on set to work with? Or, and is there any work going on on set in tweaking that to work within certain environments? Yeah, answers both yes. <laughs> um, so I created the the LUT for, for Larry to have on set so he could always reference it, use it to light to, you know, and understand what it would actually do um, live. And he also had a DIT, which was on set, which was able to create CDLs. And then uh, that could also, then there was a Dailies colorist also at Company 3 New York who was doing great work and, you know, create further refining from there. And then I started with all of that work, you know, so the whole process, I started with all of the, the color lists that they had done through dailies, um, you know, not just CDLs, you know, we did all the dailies through the results. So right. that, that was really great to be able to have to start with that. And then again, to be able to do our final fine tuning at that point. Kind of comes full circle. You started off, but then they tweak as needed. But then when you get it back, you kind of see how they that journey went and can yep. take it from there. That's great. So yeah. you have a great relationship with Lauren Scherer. You've yeah. shot, you work with many project, many projects with him. Um, yes, yes. We go way back. I think our first one, oh, I'm going to date myself, but it's like back in 2005, I think we did Dukes of Hazard <laughs> way back. And um, yeah, we've been working together pretty consistently ever since. It's been really great. Yeah, I know he's awesome. So does that really help having that kind of, do you have almost a unspoken language in some respects? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's fun because it is very collaborative. It's because we've known each other so long, we've worked together so long, I understand what he means when he wants a filmic image and some of the things he looks for and I'm able to make sure I can make those shine. And, um, you know, it's, it, we do have a shorthand for sure. And, and it is very collaborative. I can throw out some crazy ideas and, and he'll very honestly take them or not. So it's, it's, it's a good working relationship. That's great. That's good. Yeah. Um, so let me, uh, I'm going to jump into a question really quick here. Um, and this is, for, I'm going to put it up here. Um, Claudius. Neil asks, yeah. how do you deal with predetermined colors with visual effects shots? That's interesting because usually what happens is for visual effects, that's that's actually a very interesting question because earlier on in the DI stages, people used to pre-grade visual effects, block, lock in the color, and then do the visual effect on top of it and then deliver it to DI, right? That was That sometimes did happen a long time ago. Now it's evolved a little bit. So what has evolved to basically is not baking in color on visual effects. So usually what you will do is we'll have, say you have one lookup table for the show, which is usually the case. And then you have a CDL from dailies, so a color decision list mm -hmm. that travels along with that file. Every shot basically has its own CDL. I call it the color recipe. So that color recipe follows it along through the chain including visual effects. So what it is, is it's giving the visual effects a good idea of what it's going to look like in the final. And they can put on their colored recipe to see how their visual effects hold up, but it's not destructive, meaning it's not baked in. So what happens is when I get a final visual effect, I get the CDL that corresponds with it. And of course the, look, the show lookup table, which is also in the chain but there's no color that has been locked in other than slight balancing. And when I say slight balancing, I usually refer to that as um, color correction that is non-destructive. And usually what that refers to is going back to printer point type of color corrections. 
you know, which is basically if somebody doesn't have a film background, um, pretty much red, green, blue points or little bits of red or little bits of green or little bits of blue that don't change the contrast or the color depth of the image. So that question, if you're dealing with visual effects that have color baked in, um, you know, there's a, that, that's like a tip of the iceberg. You have to go back and talk about, yeah. you know, <laughs> what the actual process is, how it got there. And then if that's really the only way that it will move forward and you can't go back and get a clean file without any color baked in, then you just do, you know, you make it work the best you possibly can. You retain as much detail as you can, right? Right. Um, quick shout out to another colorist who's here. He actually says that uh, Mark Todd Osborne, I don't know if you know from Mark. Hey, Mark. Yeah, of course. Yeah, old friend of mine too, and he loves uh, that live green. So that's cool. I'll check that out. Live green's uh, awesome. Yes. Yeah. So uh, another question here from Andrea. Um, I'll let you read it. Do you find yourself using printer lights? How much qualifier <laughs> do you use for skin tones? They look beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. Um, you know, I do sometimes use printer lights because again, you know, um, it depends on where I, of course, I like to balance my images out, um, first, and then I can use printer points to be able to a communicate with cinematographers who are very familiar with the film process. Right. So it's actually a great communication tool. I'm working with say like Shelly Johnson who's like, Oh, Jill, put a, a point of green in there. You know, I, I literally can do that, which is uh, a helpful tool. And um, as far as skin qualifiers and things, I actually uh, am of more of the school of getting, when I say get a solid image, create the best skin tone, the best color separation, the best feel of an image before I start doing keys or I start doing qualifiers and that type of thing. So I actually am pretty simple and I like to get my, my color, you know, set pretty well and try to do the limited amount of keys on skin tones. Unless, again, you've, you've got stuff you're correcting for, for maybe a light that isn't balanced the correct color temperature, which happens, of course, or, you know, you're balancing stuff that is uh, cloudy versus sunny. You know, you do sometimes balancing skin tones can be a little bit tricky if it's got more of an ambient blue versus an ambient warm, you know, type of thing. So try okay. to limit that. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, great. So let's uh, move on to another show, Dr. Sleep, which, by the way, oh, just yeah. didn't freaked me out. I love <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's because it's very creepy. Um, I want to give it away. I was just about to say a plot point, but I shouldn't do that. because. <laughs> no. um, uh, so, you know, a sequel to The Shining, um, you know, in my opinion, it had a, a similar feel, but it's a different film. And so I know that you shot in some of the original, or at least, you know, you didn't shoot in the original locations, but it was supposed to look like the original locations. Mm -hmm. How much did you, um, you know, use the original as an inspiration versus, you know, kind of try to match certain areas? I know there was some in terms of intercutability, perhaps, but tell me about that process with that kind of film. So cool. So that is with my friend Michael Feminari, who is a cinematographer, and Mike Flanagan, who's awesome too, but um, and he's a director. But we all talked about the look of this film early on, and um, they really wanted, again, kind of a filmic feel, like a little bit, a throwback to The Shining, but it's, again, 20 years in the future from that. So still keeping a little hint of the filmic feel, but not, not doing it verbatim and not matching verbatim, other than the time when you do get to the Overlook Hotel, and since it's in the future, it's obvious it's like a rundown Overlook Hotel, which I got to walk around on that set, and it was super creepy. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, 
it's very creepy. Um, that was down in Atlanta. But um, so we wanted it to feel, you know, obviously recognizable. So you had the same color carpet, the iconic Overlook Hotel carpet had to feel very much the same. And um, the, you know, the green bathroom or, you know, very iconic scenes in the original movie, we wanted to, of course, maintain that same color palette, the same color tone. So it, a lot was done, a lot was done in production, like production designing, but we actually did have to change things a little bit to really make them match exactly. Because when you get the original shining footage, which we did have some of that to reference, you know, like the carpet for one, you put that side by side and um, on a big screen and we did have to key things to be able to make the reds and the oranges and the yellows match to, to the original. So there was some referencing to the original Shining. And, uh, but then we created a, a very, you know, filmic look again, you know, with that little let color depth. Um, we did use grain. We didn't use live grain on that show, but we did use uh, grain through Sapphire. And um, it worked well for, it worked well for that one uh, really well. And, um, you know, just going shot to shot and keeping that aesthetic, keeping that feel. The lookup table I built for that was um, based in film, but had, again, a little cooler shadows and warmer highlights, not to the same extent as Joker, not in the same way, but kind of similar feel. So it got that color separation going on and yeah, kept it dark. The Joker felt, you know, dramatically contrasted, you know, like there was a different feel. This felt almost gloomy and like everything was foreboding around you. Even in the daylight scenes, it seemed like even though they were brighter, you still had this kind of somebody looking over your shoulder kind of feel throughout. And That's good. That's good. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we were kind of feeling like we never wanted anything to get too super happy. It was all, you know, actually a little bit lower contrast and a little bit um, heavier, like a little darker, a little heavier, but without crushing blacks or anything right. like that. Yeah. yeah. So then we go to John Wick, which is <laughs> yeah. a different story. Very like um, intense color. You might want to say, or people might say just generally comic booky, but it's not. Yeah. It's, it's rich and the color is part of the story. So how did that, talk about the process of starting that out because I know you didn't shoot things that look like that. It was very, very much affected by cinematography and you. Yes. So yeah, Dan Lauston is a cinematographer and he's brilliant. And he he shot with a lot of beautiful colors. I think one of his favorite colors he was using was steel blue. And it's like this cyan beautiful blue that's in there. And I really was able to celebrate that in the in the show. But um, what I did is a lot of times found colors that would really pop against that and accentuates even magentas. Like if you really notice John Wick, there's there's a, there's purples and magentas that come in there that you don't usually see in, in movies, right? Yeah. So really celebrated all the different, all the different um, tones that were New York at night, all the neon and all the different colors or, you know, all the beautiful, there's so many beautiful settings, beautiful places in that movie. Um, you know, all the ballerina stuff. I mean, it's just, stunning locations. So I just got to have fun with it and keep some strong contrast in the image and really make it pop and nothing. There's the, the images had to have energy just like the movie. So yeah. we really kept the color, not garish. Obviously we still wanted to feel elegant, but really strong. And so certain times you would take certain colors out that were 
maybe competing too much with the palette that we wanted to really focus on. So there was a lot of that type of thing where we limit certain colors and really make the blues and the greens and maybe the yellows pop when, when we could take away some reds and magentas and times, you know, so it didn't feel too, too muddy or complicated, you know, too distracting. Did you find, uh, did you approach the action scenes differently from the non-action scenes? Because they still stood out visually, even though it's crazy action and still in that kind of high contrast feel. Was there a different approach to that from those two? Not really, uh, other than, of course, you know, just keeping, we wanted to even on the scenes that were in action scenes, still wanted to keep the energy. So we wanted, of course, keep that going. So it all started with the same, same approach. And of course, with the action scenes, there's a lot of cutting and just making sure it all cuts together, yeah. you know, make sure there's no bumps and all the visual effects are seamless and, and that type of thing. So uh, that only different approach is that between a scene that had a lot of visual effects and heavy cutting, you know, versus a, a scene that's more talking back and forth, you know, obviously it just takes a little bit more finesse, little color to make sure it all tracks and works and on, a sh on shots that cut quickly it's really important for the audience to look where you want them to look. Right. So there's things that we didn't really talk about this yet, but I call it shaping or using power windows to be able to, you know, guide the eye to the part of the image that you want your audience to be looking at. So when shots are cutting very quickly and you're supposed to be watching, you know, Halle Berry, you know, we want to make sure your eye stays with her. It doesn't get distracted. Maybe a bright wall that got that caught a light or something. So easily I would, bring down the wall and your eye will follow her if it's a quick cut. So That's there great. was a lot of that type of thing in, in the uh, quick cutting action stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's a question that actually kind of feeds off of that from Alexander. Uh, yeah. How do you maintain the look of a movie throughout all the different sequences with varying environments, lighting, et cetera? Do, you know, for example, Lewin's level of the black point stay about the same. How do you manage that? I know a lot of it is step by step, but is there a system to it? Yeah, I mean, the system is really just, of course, I use uh, my gallery stills to remind me of where my benchmarks are. Of, okay, well, we love this look and we'll just make sure this look stays in the same location. We want it to be a similar look towards the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie type of thing. So use my still store. And um, another way I like to do it is I work very fast. So I'll go through and just keep the movie running. I'll color very quickly. I tend not to get stuck on one shot for too long and um, keep the flow of the movie going. And for me, that helps me maintain and keep the feel to be very cohesive. Very good, okay. Mm -hmm. um, here's another one, similar. Um, okay. What's your technique to limit the range of hue? Uh, if I think it means if they are competing. Yeah, if they're competing. So um, basically, again, using still store, and that's kind of more of an aesthetic thing. Like I can just tell when something isn't working. So if we've got a shot with some really strong blue, like a like a like a cobalt blue and a and greens and maybe a gold in there. And if if there are other colors that are starting to just make it look overly colorful, I will just slowly reel that in. That's just a little bit more of an experience or a taste thing. Everybody might have a little different taste, but that's kind of how I like to do it. Okay, great. Yeah. So beyond um, so now let's get into a little bit of some tips and tricks kind of range. I know one thing that we can start off with is that, uh, you know, you see a lot of places that sell LUTs that are like the Joker look and the John Wick look and things. I think there's a misconception that that's sort of like a magic bullet. 
um, yeah. which we know it's not. Talk a little bit about why those aren't as great as you might think they are. I mean, they may be helpful in some way, but maybe you can reflect on that. Well, the one thing I will tell you is after years of working with my father as a color scientist, I know just enough to be very dangerous with color science, which also means I have a healthy respect for the amount of work that goes into creating a lookup table that will be good. And when I say that it is a good lookup table, it means that it will work across many different situations, okay? So you don't want a lookup table that only works for the daylight or a lookup table that only works for night. You know, that to me is a red flag that something's wrong or broken. And you don't want a lookup table that won't work very well when it translates to, um, you know, 709 versus HDR or something. So there's a lot of technical things that go into lookup tables, limiting um, the gamut, figure, making mapping different colors, mapping saturation of colors, um, mapping the curves. So knowing when I have all of this knowledge and this experience dealing with creating lookup tables and dealing with some of the most amazing, not only my father, but with John Cortell, who's amazing at Company 3 and a lot of other wonderful people who I've worked with in my career, I know that there's a lot of science behind it. And there is a lot of reasoning method to the madness, should I say, to creating lookup tables. So when I see websites with lookup tables of the Joker look um, or the whatever, I mean, I'm flattered. That's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome people want to re recreate that. But it is uh, most probably doesn't have all of the knowledge and the background of the science that actually went into creating um, the lookup table that we actually used, right? And then, so then going from there, the lookup table is a great base, meaning it gives you your film stock feel, or you gives you a um, nice consistency through through a movie and can maintain a beautiful look. But there's still an awful lot of shot to shot work. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done to be able to, you know, make visual effects seamless or to shape the show. So you know, using power windows or whatever to um, to shape, adding the grain, adding. Um, you know, limiting the palette or expanding the palette, all of those things, you know, help tell the story. So the lookup table is definitely not like an Instagram filter. You can throw that on there or a <laughs> magic bullet that can then just give you that look. There's, uh, you know, I've seen people online trying to, of course, um, replicate Joker or replicate whatever. And that's great. Maybe it'll work for one shot or so, but you know, or maybe even five, or maybe they've got a great thing that they figured out. And that's amazing. I'm, I'm not taking away from that because everybody's got their own way to do it. But, um, you know, the way that we do it on a big show, it's, it's you know, it has to work on all levels, meaning it has to be technically sound. It has to work across all different platforms and all different ways that we get uh, to HDR and like I was saying, cinematic and 709. And so, um, it, there's a lot that goes into lookup tables. So it is, it's one of those things where, you know, if it works for you, for your creative, for if you're on 709, you get the look you want, go for it. But it, when you really get into what the actual real luck was, it was pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I think you brought up the Instagram uh, filter reference. It's yeah. like, how many times do we pick only one Instagram filter? We're always like scrolling through, oh, it doesn't look good. That one doesn't look good. You know, mm -hmm. it's you can like you said, you may look good in one shot, but things are shot and colored together to look yeah. well shot by shot. You don't it's not a magic bullet, like you said. I'm just repeating what you're saying. Yeah. No, you're right though. Yeah, exactly. That was Mark Osborne, but uh, <laughs> don't get me started. Um here's uh so let's talk to uh let's see what 
Hanei says, uh, what's your advice for a colorist who's just start starting? Uh, they just got into color grading. What is your advice? Uh, I want to be a colorist. What do I do at the beginning? What's my thing? Well, I, there's a few things I would say. First thing I would say is to study art and photography, because when you're working with cinematographers and directors, we're all artists and they're all have a, everybody I've worked with in the movie industry usually has a very, very strong visual mm, background. They understand art, they understand photography, they would, they are inspired by those things. So having that language to be able to understand when they're talking about different painters or different photographers or even different styles, it's super helpful. So that I would really recommend for any colorist getting into, getting into, um, to this world, the coloring. And then the other thing I would recommend is, uh, you know, just teach yourself your tools as much as you can. You don't necessarily have to, like for me, when I was learning, again, I'm dating myself a bit, but there were no like online YouTube things where I could just Google how to make a power window or something. I had to read the manual and I had to sit and make mistakes and press buttons and crash the machine or whatever I did at the time to be able to learn what to do and how to do it in my way. Right. So one of the beautiful things about colorists is that we all, whatever what level you are, we all do it differently. We all do it a little bit differently. We've all learned a little bit different ways to do things. Um, it's the, kind of the fun part of working at Company Three because of working with some pretty amazing other colorists uh, there that we all share information and you know they oh cool you did it like that that's kind of a fun way to do it or different way to think of it and so figuring out your own way to run the tools, learning it on your own. Right now it's very accessible. You, you know, you can, there are many tutorials out there, but really if you just sit down, have the confidence to read the manual and hit the buttons and figure it out and learn the tools the best you can, that's awesome. And so those two things, just having an art and painting aesthetic background and um, learning what a good image is just by practice and by understanding uh, and then just learning the tools the best you can. I mean, those are the best things I would say to get started. Yeah, um, I think you may have mentioned this, but shooting stuff, going to getting a still camera and going to shoot, right. and try different things, try extreme contrasts and stuff, just to get a feel for what an image does. Right, and then when you start trying to recreate, and, and also something that's kind of interesting, if you try to recreate looks, that's why I see all these tutorials of uh, colorists trying to recreate looks. It's actually very educational, I think, to be able to try to break down looks of different movies because you're starting to pay attention more. You know, yeah. when I was in art school doing painting and things, they would have you replicate master work, master paintings. So you would have to now look at it with a different eye and understand and not take for granted all the levels of color, that depth of color they had to create to make a certain vibe, you know? So that is actually valuable, trying to replicate movies that you love. Um, you know, understanding. And if, even if you do it for one shot, you're probably not going to do it for every shot again. Like one look at the table probably won't work. Forever. But even if you start to understand and break down one shot and understand, oh, wait a minute, the color in, the color's a bit more green here and a little bit more blue here. How did that happen? And then start keying it and figuring it out. You know, that's a good learning tool as well. Yeah. Yeah. When I yeah. first started as a cinematographer in film school many eons ago, I'm, I could date myself worse than you. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but it was... I, my film experience was ruined for two to three years because I couldn't go watch a film without doing that. But from a cinematography standpoint of where's that key light? Oh, that's like, that doesn't match in terms of the, so it, 
you'll go through that process, but it means you're breaking it down, which is what you're saying. Exactly. That's what you need to do to understand it. So. Exactly. It's a huge learning tool. So Shinto asks, I'm, I'm just going to read it out loud because it's a little long. Uh, sure. From Brother, where art thou? Yeah. Um, the, he says that the revolution of unique digital film begins. Uh, yeah. You've worked with Roger Deakins. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a point. What's the thing <laughs> until now? Uh, what I guess what has what's the evolution of digital color throughout those years that you've experienced? Uh, so yeah, um, I was the assistant on Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and um, I did take over. the The main colorist was was ill for a few weeks, so I just filled in to help him out, really. So I was not the primary colorist on that. That was my first gig here in LA, and um, was running all the assistant work, but also coloring occasionally. But uh, so yes, I was very lucky to work with Roger, <laughs> like right out of the gate. So that was pretty cool. But the digital evolution from there till now is has come a long way. Back in when when it was the very beginning of digital intermediate, it was more of a kind of a fad or a boutique type of thing where it was only being done for very extreme or different looks, like Oh Brother or um, what else did I did like stuff for Gothica. I did um, early on very creative looks. Oh, I think I did like a uh, SWAT and anyway, there was a bunch of movies that were starting to go through digital intermediate that were mainly for the creative look, not just the workflow or the main, you know, mainstream right. workflow. So a lot of people thought or would tell us that it was never going to work. Studios were learning about it and starting to embrace it. It was uh, cinematographers were learning it and starting to embrace it. So it wasn't really well accepted in the very beginning, like any big change with mm -hmm. technology, right? So I've seen it go from people being a little hesitant and in people I remember used to say in the early 2000s, oh, I don't want to do a DI because it's going to feel too digital, right? Where it doesn't have to, if you have a really good color, it can actually now, funny enough, we're making it look like film, right? So it's <laughs> Come along right back to the beginning. So, but with better. Right back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, here's a good question. Um, I find it where the can you talk about your work with Wes Anderson? This is from Jacqueline Miller. Uh, yeah. Up here. Um, how do you create unique looks? And you're in those are several, separate questions. So Wes Anderson first. Yes. So Wes is awesome. Um, he's very collaborative as well. So I went to London to work with him and for Grand Budapest Hotel. That was all shot on film, but he would want to see, he's like, okay, we need to look for the 30s, look for the 60s, look for the 80s. So what do you think? And I would just pitch him ideas. And, um, you know, and he would kind of pick what he liked about each thing. So really I spent a week in London just trying to understand aesthetically what he wanted, how we were gonna create the different looks or the different time periods in that movie. Of course, there's different aspect ratios as well, so we could play with that as, as well. And, um, you know, he would give, literally, it was, it was great, because I would wake up every morning with like pages of an email from Wes, <laughs> stuff he had been thinking about, or images he found, like old photochrome library references, which is, are amazing if you ever Google that, so cool. And, um, so almost look like hand painted images. And so how could we recreate that? Like in the beginning of Grand Budapest, there's a cemetery scene where she goes to grab keys. And, um, you know, we wanted to keep the camel color of her coat, but we 
didn't want certain other colors to be popping through that were actually in the image and really limited it and really made it very hand painted feel almost black and white in certain areas. So um, it was really fun to be able to look at references he would send me and interpret it and recreate it for moving images. So, and then we would create vignettes. We'd have hundred little points for vignettes around the four by three um, image. And then he'd be like, you know, maybe that doesn't work so well for this shot. So we change it all around. And uh, yeah, it was, he, he was, he was brilliant to work with because he was so knowledgeable and so creative and was so collaborative. So it was really inspiring actually to work with somebody like that. Yeah, somebody with that kind of, not all directors and even cinematographers have this visual passion, but he seems so like old school, like really wanted to dig into the brass tacks of, of what every frame is gonna look like in a fun way. It sounds yeah. like he was great to work with. So. Oh yeah, oh, he's amazing. He was great to work with. And I had a really fun time with him. And um, really, you know, he, some, again, I would throw out some ideas to him and sometimes he'd be like, mm, that's not gonna work. <laughs> Other times he's like, oh, that's so cool. Why don't we do this? That's yeah. oh, let's do it on this scene too, or let's get that idea. You know, he he's very passionate and very um, collaborative, and so it was really it was just inspiring to yeah. work with with that. Yeah. So J Jacqueline also asked, but so did a couple other people. What your inspire? What your inspiration is? Not necessarily on a particular project, but where do you find your artistic inspiration? I think some of it's behind us, right? Yeah, some of yeah. So I do I do paint. You know, you can kind of see it's a little off angle, but. I like color, as you can tell. <laughs> and, um, you know, I like large scale paintings. I paint a lot of horses and, and portraits of women. But, um, you know, for me, I'm always inspired by other artists or uh, poetry or, you know, nature or, you know, stories. I was telling you, I read scripts and I really love being able to use color to help tell the story in a very subtle way. Not in a huge way that, you know, you know that it's like so crazy that, you know, it takes you out of the story, but something that lends itself to the story in a very elegant way is always inspiring. So um, work with work by other colorists always inspires me. And, um, you know, I'm always looking for for images at, through Instagram. I love finding different photographers and painters. And before COVID, I would just go wander on art galleries all the time, you know, <laughs> downtown L.A. or down in Santa Monica, Bergamot, and just wander through different art galleries and, and look at color combinations and textures and, and things just, so, I mean, kind of, that's, it's kind of all over the place, <laughs> but that's what I really like to do is just be inspired by a lot of different things. And, you know, uh, books as well, reading different stories. Uh, also, you know, I have friends that we go back and forth with books, different books that inspire us and things. Yeah. So. I do paintings off of that as well. Great, amazing, yeah. that's good. Yeah. So two, we'll do two more questions, we're almost out of time. Okay. Uh, one I keep getting repeatedly, and I don't want you to give away your magic mojo, but yeah. you can do this how you feel you would like to answer it, which sure. is, here it is right here. Evan asks, uh, I was wondering what the average number of nodes you would use on a clip and has that number changed over the past years? There's that. That's an interesting question because there's, I don't know. Every every shot is different. Um, every movie is different. Um, I wouldn't say have an average. It's just I do whatever kind of needs to be done for the shot. Again, I try to stay it can pretty simple. I'll go through and uh, pre time, pre time show with usually a couple nodes. You know, nothing too complicated, and then and then build from there. You know, whatever I'm working with the cinematographer or the director just 
figuring that all out uh, as we go. So there's no, I wish I had a better answer, but there's no, no answer really. What is the most nodes you've ever had, do you think, on a shot? Oh man, I don't know. I mean, it's it can get up there depending, it's usually, it's usually on some sort of visual effect thing. Talking about Wes, there was one shot where we created cracks in the ice using um, uh, my power window. So I actually drew cracks into the ice using wow. combination of a visual effects mat and my my drawing the, the lines. It's when uh, he was falling off the ice and hanging onto the edge. Yeah. We, we drew a lot of those things in to make it feel like more cracked and more textured and things. So that we had quite a few layers, I don't know, 40, 50 layers on that shot. Yeah. Um, you know, can get when you start hand drawing little things and augmenting uh, visual effects, it can get pretty deep. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So actually, you're in Resolve, right? You're in Division. Yes. Yeah. So have I've heard a lot of colorists starting to um, incorporate Fusion into that workflow since it's a tab there to do yeah. more visual effects work like that. Have you started doing any of that yet? I have not, simply because um, I have to. Right now, the way I have it is a lot of the bigger movies still have visual effects set with their visual effects department. I also have a visual effects crew at Company 3 that can do some smaller work for me. It's actually right. more time efficient, better use of time to not have me do it in that way sure. at the moment. Um, you know, unless I get into Fusion for, for other stuff. I really haven't used it that much yet, only because I haven't had a huge need for it. Right. Um, and it, I do have other, you know, when I'm working on a big show, they've got their own visual effects crew. So working on small me. shows. What are you talking about? You have I know. Um, okay, quick, couple quick more questions. Um, sure. What, here's Luca asks, what colorist do you admire? And what are your yeah. thoughts on colorists being left out of the Academy? Or is it, oh, getting controversial? You I know, right? That's the second part if you don't want to, but what colorists do you admire? Well, honestly, I have to say I'm very lucky because I work with a lot of them. Um, Stefan Sonnenfeld is brilliant. And so Stefan Nakamura, brilliant. Tim Stippen, um, Bob Festa is a legend. He's amazing. Uh, Siggy is super yeah. crazy technical. Chris Siggy's awesome. And I mean, literally, I feel like I'm going to forget people, but like there's so many amazing people that I work with. And just my peers are incredible. Walter Volpato is great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I really, I've, I'm so lucky to be able to have normal conversations and text message chains with these guys and just be able to trade information and uh, share work with, you, with my- You wander around and look at each other's work now and Oh then? yeah, oh yeah, I walk right yeah. in the theater. I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, really no, it's, it's, it's pretty fun um, in that way. So I'm very lucky to have, yeah. And you know, Yvonne Lucas is also brilliant. I mean, there's so many amazing um, colorists, you know. Yeah. Um, I found that there's a question up here. I gotta find it again here. Um, there was a person who was, oh, here we go. Uh, Patrick asks, um, do you think it's possible to pivot from editorial to color? He's a visual effects editor. Oh, with company three. <laughs> I think he's pitching you. <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> Um, yeah, totally. I mean, if you want to go editorial color, for sure, you just definitely need to, you know, put in the work. That's the only, that's the, that's the thing, just like with any of these jobs and moving in from do, being at a, in editorial is a hard job as well, but being detail oriented, putting in the work, putting in the hours. I always reference Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers with the 10,000 hours, you know, um, because it's so true. 
you know, it takes, it just takes time to be able to get the eye, to get the experience, to be able to run a room with high pressure and also run the board and put a good image on the big screen. That just takes a lot of time and effort and uh, experience, but yeah, totally possible if you want to work at it. <laughs> and I think, could you, would you recommend that um, young people who want to color try to contact young filmmakers doing short films, trying to find ways, because you need material to work on. So you Absolutely. gotta develop that eye, yeah. Whether Absolutely. it be- Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's now with online, I mean, you can get a hold of so many small projects to start, you know, uh, getting some experience, music videos, commercials, anything you can do to be able to kind of just get some stuff to practice on and, and then, or even do some, shoot your own stuff, you know, sure. and practice on it and see, what kind of looks you can make and what what different things clients want you know what do they when you're in a room with a client you see things differently because the client has to you know uh has a certain thing that they need to put forward whether it be a project excuse me a product or a uh a feeling or whatever so you start to deal with clients and understanding where they're coming from it gives you a new perspective about how to color great um i'm going to throw mark uh, out one more uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> do you often have time to work alone on the project before you present to the client? Some clients like to be there every day. Some come at the beginning. I think he's he's venting a little bit too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Well, some people just really like hanging out. I mean, I'm cool with that. But a lot of times, what I'll do, I do work alone a lot. Um, in the beginning, when I am in the pre-grading session, and that's usually with people that I've worked with a lot before. So um, we've had conversations. I've built a lookup table. I've been looking at their dailies. We've had conversations. I'll say, give me a couple of days to get this in line so we can come in and make, um, you know, more informed decisions. And so you don't have to, you know, it's kind of like watching paint dry if, if you're watching a colorist do a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's more fun to come in and be able to give more constructive, oh, let's shape this, let's do this, or I like the mood of this, let's like push it further, you know? So, uh, you know, depends. And then there's some people who do want to be there all the time. And that's, you know, okay with me too. I've done it both ways. And uh, usually though, if somebody's there the whole time, sometimes it goes a little longer with budget, depending on the person. I've also had people who like to be there all the time that totally just are like, I just want to be here to observe. It's totally cool. Like, don't let me slow you down kind of thing. So everybody's different. And I'm, you know, I'm social. I'm happy to have a buddy in the, in the yeah, with cool. me. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that, I think we will say thank you so much for being generous with your time and talking with all of us. And uh, and we appreciate you being part of the Black Magic Collective. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's really my pleasure to be a part of it. Okay, great. Well, we will hopefully talk to you again soon. So yes, thank you. I hope so. Okay.